Chapter Seven of the Terror: A Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Brander. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter Seven: The Case of the Hidden Germans. Lewis gasped for a moment, silent in contemplation of the magnificence of rumour. The Germans already landed, hiding underground, striking by night, secretly, terribly, at the power of England. Here was a conception which made the myth of the Russians a paltry fable, before which the legend of Mons was an ineffectual thing. It was monstrous. And yet, he looked steadily at Merritt, a square-headed, black-haired, solid sort of man. He had symptoms of nerves about him for the moment, certainly, but one could not wonder at that, whether the tales he told were true, or whether he merely believed them to be true. Lewis had known his brother-in-law for twenty years or more, and had always found him a sure man in his own small world. But then, said the doctor to himself, those men, if they once get out of the ring of that little world of theirs, they are lost. Those are the men that believed in Madame Blavatsky, well he said what do you think yourself the germans landed and hiding somewhere about the country there's something extravagant in the notion isn't there i don't know what to think you can't get over the facts there are the soldiers with their rifles and the guns at the works all over Staffordshire, and those guns go off i told you i'd hurt them then who are the soldiers shooting at that's what we ask ourselves in Middlingham quite so i quite understand it's an extraordinary state of things it's more than extraordinary it's an awful state of things it's terror in the dark and there's nothing worse than that as that young fellow i was telling you about said at the front you do know what you're up against and people really believe that a number of germans have somehow got over to england and have hid themselves underground people say they've got a new kind of poison gas something that they dig underground places and make the gas air and lead it by secret pipes into the shops others say that they throw gas bombs into the factories it must be worse than anything they've used in france from what the authorities say the authorities do they admit that there are germans in hiding about Middlingham? no they call it explosions but we know it isn't explosions we know in the midlands what an explosion sounds like and looks like and we know that the people killed in these explosions are put into the coffins in the works their own relations are not allowed to see them and so you believe in the german theory if i do it's because one must believe in something some say they've seen the gas i heard that a man living in dunwich saw it one night like a black cloud with sparks of fire in it floating over the tops of the trees by dunwich common the light of an ineffable amazement came into Lewis's eyes. The night of remnants of visit, the trembling vibration of the air, the dark tree that had grown in his garden since the setting of the sun, the strange leafage that was starred with burning with emerald and ruby fires, and all vanished away when he returned from his visit to the garth, and such leafage had appeared as a burning cloud far in the heart of england what intolerable mystery what tremendous doom was signified in this 
but one thing was clear and certain that the terror of marion was also the terror of the midlands lewis made up his mind most firmly that if possible all this should be kept from his brother-in-law marriage had come to Porth as to a city of refuge from the horrors of Middleham. if it could be managed he should be spared the knowledge that the cloud of terror had gone before him and hung black over the western land lewis passed the port and said in an even voice very strange indeed a black cloud with sparks of fire i can't answer for it you know it's only a rumour just so and you think or you're inclined to think that these and all the rest you've told me is to be put down to the hidden germans as i say because one must think something i quite see your point no doubt if it's true it's the most awful blow that has ever been dwelled at any nation in the whole history of man the enemy established now vitals but is it possible after all how could it have been worked Merritt told Lewis how it had been worked, or rather, how people said it had been worked. The idea, he said, was that there was a part, and a most important part, of the great German plot to destroy England and the British Empire. The scheme had been prepared years ago, some thought soon after the Franco-Prussian War. Moltke had seen that the invasion of England, in the ordinary sense of the term invasion, presented very great difficulties. The matter was constantly in discussion in the inner military and high political circles, and the general trend of opinion in these quarters was that at the best the invasion of England would involve Germany in the gravest difficulties and leave France in the position of the Tertius Gaudens. This was the state of affairs when a very high Prussian personage was approached by the Swedish professor Uvelius. Thus merit, and here I would say in parenthesis that this Uvelius was by all accounts an extraordinary man. Considered personally and apart from his writings, he would appear to have been a most amiable individual. He was richer than the generality of Swedes, certainly far richer than the average university professor in Sweden. But his shabby, green frock coat and his spattered furry hat was notorious in the university town where he lived. No one laughed, because it was well known that Professor Huvelius spent every penny of his private means and a large portion of his official stipend on works of kindness and charity. He hid his hat in a garret, someone said, in order that others might be able to swell on the first floor. It was told of him that he restricted himself to a diet of dry bread and coffee for a month in order that the poor woman of the streets, dying of consumption, might enjoy luxuries in hospital and this was the man who wrote a treatise de facinore humano to prove the infinite corruption of the human race oddly enough professor huvelius wrote the most cynical book in the world hobbes preaches rosy sentimentalism in comparison with the very highest motives he held that a very large part of human misery misadventure and sorrow was due to the false convention that the heart of man was naturally and in the main well disposed and kindly if not exactly righteous murderers thieves assassins violators and all the host of the abominable he says in one passage are created by the false pretence and foolish credence of human virtue a lion in a cage is a fierce beast indeed but what will he be 
if we declare him to be a lamb and open the doors of his den we'll be guilty of the death of the men women and children whom he will surely devour save those who unlocked the cage and he goes on to show that kings and the rulers of the peoples could decrease the sum of human misery to a vast extent by acting on the doctrine of human wickedness war he declares which is one of the worst of evils will always continue to exist but a wise king will decide a brief war rather than a lengthy one a short evil rather than a long evil and this not from the benignity of his heart towards his enemies for we have seen that the human heart is naturally malignant but because it desires to conquer and to conquer easily without a great expenditure of men or of treasure knowing that if he can accomplish this feat his people will love him and his crown will be secure so he will wage brief victorious wars and not only spare his own nation but the nation of the enemy since in a short war the loss is less on both sides than in a long war and so from evil will come good and how ask huvelius has such wars to be waged the wise prince he replies will begin by assuming the enemy to be infinitely corruptible and infinitely stupid since stupidity and corruption are the chief characteristics of man so the prince will make himself friends in the very councils of his enemy and also amongst the populace bribing the wealthy by proffering them the opportunity of still greater wealth and winning the poor by swelling words for contrary to the common opinion it is the wealthy who are greedy of wealth while the populace are to be gained by talking to them about liberty the unknown god and so much are they enchanted by the words liberty freedom and such like that the wise can go to the poor rob them of what little they have dismiss them with a hearty kick and win their hearts and their votes for ever if only they will assure them that the treatment which they have received is called liberty guided by these principles says huvelius the wise prince will entrench himself in the country that he desires to conquer nay with but little trouble he may actually have literally throw his garrisons into the hearts of the enemy country before war has begun this is a long and tiresome parenthesis but it is necessary as explaining the long tale which merritt told his brother-in-law he having received it from some magnate of the midlands who had travelled in germany it is probable that the story was suggested in the first place by the passage from huvelius which i have just quoted merritt knew nothing of the real huvelius he was all but a saint he thought of the swedish professor as a monster of iniquity worse as he said than nietzsche meaning no doubt nietzsche so he told the story of how huvelius had sold his plan to the germans a plan for filling england with german soldiers land was to be bought in certain suitable and well-considered places englishmen were to be bought as the apparent owners of such land and secret excavations were to be made till the country was literally undermined a subterranean germany in fact was to be dug under selected districts of england there were to be great caverns underground cities well drained well ventilated supplied with water and in these places vast stores both of food and of munitions were to be accumulated year after year 
till the day dawned and then warned in time the secret garrison would leave shops hotels offices villas and vanish underground ready to begin their work of bleeding england at the heart that's what hansen told me said merritt at the end of his long story hansen head of the buckley iron and steel syndicate he has been a lot in germany well said louise of course it may be so if it is so it is terrible beyond words indeed he found something horribly plausible in the story it was an extraordinary plan of course an unheard-of scheme but it did not seem impossible it was the trojan horse on a gigantic scale indeed he reflected the story of the horse with the warriors concealed within it which was dragged into the heart of troy by the deluded trojans themselves might be taken as the prophetic parable of what had happened to england if hansen's theory were well founded and this theory certainly squared with what one had heard of german preparations in belgium and in france emplacements for guns ready for the invader german manufactories which were really german forts on belgian soil the caverns by the aden made ready for the cannon indeed lewis thought he remembered something about suspicious concrete tennis courts on the heights commanding london but the german army hidden under english ground it was a thought to chill the stoutest heart and it seemed from that wonder of the burning tree that the enemy mysteriously and terribly present at Mittlenham was present also in marion lewis thinking of the country as he knew it of his wild and desolate hillsides his deep woods his wastes and solitary places could not be confessed that no more fit region could be found for the deadly enterprise of secret men yet he thought again there was but little harm to be done in marion to the armies of england or to their munitionment they were working for panic terror possibly that might be so but the camp under the highway that should be their first project and no harm had been done there lewis did not know that since the panic of the horses men had died terribly in that camp that it was now a fortified place with a deep broad trench a thick tangle of savage barbed wire about it and a machine-gun planted at each corner End of chapter seven